Hello and welcome to Life of Brian, dot, 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 Mannix, that is uh, the podcast that asks the question, what the hell's Brian up to at the moment? That's the that's well, the question this podcast asks. Hello, Brian. Really? Hello, uh, Kevin, and uh, hello to uh, anybody listening. So um, we're, we're in the penthouse, we're entering the penthouse uh, club now, as we, it's more like the penthouse cult, well, uh, but anyway. Have a l- well, this is my entrance. Have a look at this. I beg your now, pardon. Uh, this is my entrance. Have a look at this. But that's, so, that's if this was see. a carry, if this was a carry-on film, we've already got fifteen minutes. You know what I mean? See, see there oh, you go. That's, have that's you got Audrey entrance. Hepburn up in your entrance? Yeah, she's about eight foot tall. Wow. So, and then I've got. Oh, she's not. She's about five foot five. You're just lying about your own height. No, she's about eight foot tall. <laughs> and then I've got this girl in the shower on my wood on my. My uh, laundry door. Oh, okay. Oh, this is all part of. Is this all part of the reimaging of Brian Mannix to be a mayor of the Gold well, Coast? Well, no. Well, that's. Well, I've got to get. That's my next job. But um, <laughs> I'm, re- I'm renovating at the moment, and um, yeah, I reckon by the time I finish, I'll, I, I think I'll look like. I'll feel like I'm living in a comic, which is great. So, can we call this the Rock Block? Can this be? Can we make this into a television series and call it the Rock Block? And have you what? there with a you know one of those big Bunnings tool uh, belts on, standing there looking like a member of the Village People? Imagine me with a big Bunnings tool belt on. <laughs> no, you, Fair dinkum. Yeah. Probably, probably pull me to the ground uh, and I would be able to get up. Weigh you down immediately. Uh, hey, look, uh, we've got a terrific show and, again, I want to thank our, our – About our, time, Kev. About yeah. time we've had a terrific show. <laughs> Want to thank our. Uh, we've always had terrific sponsors. We've not necessarily always had terrific shows, but geez, we've had a terrific sponsor we all have. the way through with Murcott. So we want to thank them. And just a reminder, it's not that Christmas. God knows, is not that far away. No. Um, so a gift certificate at Christmas time, and, and this is a gift certificate that actually has a bit of meat and bones about it. It's not just you know your your thirty dollar Bunnings one or your twenty five dollar you know Dan Murphy one. This actually will make a difference. It's a gift certificate to Murcott's. So you can, you know, help someone be a better driver. So jump on the website, mercots.edu.au, and uh, and make sure you grab one of those uh, for this Christmas or give them a buzz on 1300 555 That's the one. All right. All right. On the show today, uh, coming up, we're going to give you a little taste of an interview that Brian and I did uh, this last week with a man who used to be the uh, tour manager of the Rolling Stones and manager of the Grateful Dead. Yeah. His name what is Sam Cutler. He lives yep. in Australia these days. Well, he kind of commutes in Australia these days. He sort of lives in a, in a, in a bus and, and not in a bus. And, uh, he sort a, of still goes on tour but yeah. without the band. Yeah, exactly. He's a really so just, interesting man. So uh, got a little bit of Sam to play for you later on the show. Uh, Izzy Dye's coming up. Now, talk about great troopers of, uh, of the entertainment industry. What a, what a guy. And he's been doing it for so long. You know, he must have been performing for 50 years. Yeah, well, it's more than that, So, which you'll tell us in the interview. It's a, it's a, it's a lifetime. So I'll catch up with Izzy, um, who, as we speak, is in London, uh, if you follow him on social media, but we caught him before he went to London. What's, what's he doing in London? He's just, I think, on uh, on a holiday over there with uh, with family. So What's he doing having a holiday? Well, because he's finally taken a couple of weeks off from, uh, you know, performing at every venue no, 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 known no, in this no. country. 
Back to work, Izzy. Come on, mate. <laughs> yeah, well, it wouldn't surprise me if he's actually doing shows over there because no. he's one of those people who seems to work 365 days uh, a year. I, I, I didn't realise he was a bit of a sook. What do you, you know, mean? He's, well, he's only been working for 60-plus years and now he decides he needs a holiday. Yeah, yeah it's soft. It's a little bit soft, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Tom Bailey's first up, uh, the man who, of course, was the uh, one of the brains behind the Thompson Twins there. He's touring uh, with the Into the Gap tour, which starts, uh, we'll give you the dates a little later on, but, uh, yeah, Tom Bailey's with us as well. So a lot All to right. get through in this program. So uh, lots coming up and uh, you've just got a little, you've got a putty, your crack up there in your in your Front room? No, there's no cracks to be puttied up, thank you. <laughs> Goodness me. I was, wasn't sure. Uh, putty well, up my crack. Well, oh. While you're doing that, we'll have a listen to Tom Bailey. All right, I'll putty up my crack. Hello, Tom. Hello, how are you? Tom, it's Kevin Hillier calling from Melbourne, Australia. How are you going? I'm very good, thanks, Kevin. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having a chat um, to us. I appreciate it. No problem at all. It's a pleasure. So the tour um, uh, here in Australia, which of course will kick off in Brisbane uh, in late October, um, you're doing the uh, the Into the Gap album. T- take me through, uh, and and obviously the the hits that you had outside of that album, but that was the the pivotal Thompson Twins album. So how'd you come up with the the idea for this show? Well, you know, who would have thought it? Is my, is my first <laughs> comment. You know, who were, were making that record back in the early eighties? You never expect to have to kind of uh, perform it in, in its entirety. Even then, you know, you would normally just do a selection, the hits, and a few other tracks. But anyway, here we are, and it's one of the ways that promoters are asking bands, you know, to perform uh, an album in its entirety. So my managers put it to me: Would I like to do it? And my first thought was: Oh, I, I haven't even listened to some of those tracks for for all that time. Uh, but I, I checked them out and I did arrangements of them. I'm expecting it to be great fun, actually, for us to play. And, of course, there are fans of the record who want to hear those less well-known tracks. So that's what it will be. I, I must say, I'm not going to do it in the order that it appears on the record. Oh, okay. Because, you know, back in the day, record companies had this kind of weird habit of they would choose what they thought would be their hit songs and put them kind of tracks one, two, three, and four on an album. So if you perform it in that order, you basically do the well-known songs first and then go into the deep cuts and eventually to the fillers. And I've seen that go, I've seen that go wrong with, with bands performing in order. So we're doing a kind of shuffle technique um, where um, we're actually saving some of the best known songs for the end, because you want to end up with a with a big finish and a big sing along and all that kind of stuff. So, and um, that's what we'll do. A song that still, to me, bounces out of the radio. Sounded great when it was released, and uh, and sounds every bit as good uh, these days. Is is Hold Me Now? Is that a is that a song that uh, that is still very near and dear and and uh, you know glows in your heart? It is. It, it is, and it's it's one of those strange things. It seems to have a life of its own. Um, when we perform it live, it stops just being another song and becomes this big emotional opening opportunity. You know, we have crowds who sing their hearts out in that song. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. Again, we didn't, at the time we knew we had a great song, but I didn't know people would be singing it in their thousands, uh, 45 years later. 
Before we finish on that and I introduce you to Brian, my, my co-host, uh, uh, the, that song that song came out of an argument that you and Alana actually had. Is that is that a true story or is that myth? Well, it, it kind of is, yeah. I mean, you know, we're, we're human beings and uh, human beings have disagreements. I can't remember what it was, but it was some some uh, some tiff. And we, um, as, as, as grown-up people have to do, we had to make up and be friends again. And it was about that process um, of saying, okay, I'm sorry, giving someone a hug. And that kind of opened the door, if you like, for the writing of the song. Yep. Uh, meet Brian Mannix. Brian Mannix, meet Tom Bailey. Hello, hey, Tom. Brian. I'm delighted to talk to you. I've been a big fan for a long time. I'm really excited that you, you're coming out to Australia to tour because I think it's going to be huge. Everybody in Australia loves you. Tell us about the band. Pro- who's who's in the band these days, Tom? Because at one stage you had well, an, all, an all-female band, didn't you? I still I still do, yeah. And some people from the last time we toured in Australia are still in the band. It's an amazing group of musicians. Uh, I'm very happy to work with them. So, yeah, that, that kind of rolls on. And as, as you say, it's an all-female band, which is an interesting dynamic too. You know, I like working with women. And, uh, back in the day, of course, it was difficult for women to get a foothold in the rock and roll business unless they were either the lead vocal or the backing vocals. It's very rare for them to do anything else. Um, Alana, in, in fact, was one of the people who broke down that barrier. So we're continuing in a kind of tradition we started. Are you still yeah. enjoying performing live? Or how do you feel about performing live these days? No, I, I absolutely enjoy it totally. It's a kind of drug for me, to be honest. And because I took a long break from performing those songs, the kind of pop songs, I'd always been involved in, in some kind of music performance, but those big shows with the big hits, I'd stayed away for from a long time. And when I rediscovered it, it was like, it was like getting back back on the needle. You know, it's a kind of weird thing to to admit, but there's a real addictive quality to it, and I get so high and so happy from it if it goes well, of course, which it usually does. And I think if you if you reach the point where it's just another gig and a bit of a chore to do it, then maybe you should take a break. Hey Tom, uh, what are your memories of that? Um, the probably the biggest show was was the JFK Stadium Live Aid one the biggest show you've ever done, or was there a bigger one than that? Well, certainly in terms of the, uh, the people watching on TV, it was an enormously uh, big and um, certainly the biggest collective audience we've ever played to. I think we maybe did one other bigger show in terms of the live audience. Yeah. But wow, what a day um, Live Aid was. It was it was almost overwhelmingly exciting and uh, the biggest deal ever. You got to hang out with some pretty reasonable people, both on stage and off stage, that day too. That's right. <laughs> well, we were very lucky. We kind of threw a band together because we were in New York recording, so we didn't have our regular touring band with us. And uh, David Letterman's band had the night off because instead of screening the David Letterman show, they were going to screen Live Aid. So they were all at a loose end. Nile Rogers, we were working with, he kind of recruited them. Um, and Madonna and we did a kind of swap on backing vocals. So she sang on our set and we sang on hers. And Steve Stevens, the guitarist from Billy Idol's band, who played on that record, he he um, wanted to come and play with us as well. So we had this kind of star-studded um, outfit for, for Live Aid, which was amazing. And weren't you hanging yes. out backstage with Bob Dylan and people like that as well? 
Uh, yeah, I had a strange kind of uh, uh, star strike where to avoid some fans who were, sh- I was talking to Madonna actually, and they were shouting, Yay, Madonna! So we stepped into a corridor and, and through a door, and it happened to be the door where they were taking photographs of the artists. And at that moment, by chance, in, in this fairly small room, we walked in and there was Bob Dylan, most of the Rolling Stones, Tina Turner and a few other people beside. And I was completely <laughs> unable to join that conversation. I felt completely out of my league. But interesting, you know, they were all there kind of showing their support for that day. Wow. Now, Steve Stevens, now, he's a pretty over-the-top guitarist. I love his work. I met him. I was lucky to meet him after a uh, Countdown Rock Awards in Australia. And... Steve Stevens and the Thompson Twins. You know, did Steve subdue himself or he just. Well, went well the, the, the thing is, when we. In the early days of the Thompson Twins, when we first toured America, we played in New York. And Steve, who is just a great musician and therefore interested in all forms of music, he came to the show and, and he liked it. And so he got in touch and said that he liked it. So subsequently, when we were kind of looking for a kind of incendiary guitar style, which I didn't really do myself at the time, I think Alana said, why don't we get in touch with Steve and see if he's interested? So we were recording in Paris at the time. He flew over in his um, spray-on latex suit <laughs> with a Marshall stack. <laughs> I think he had to have a shower after the flight. And, uh, um, and, and played some blistering guitar parts um, for us on that record. Because the one, the JFK thing, he said, plays on Revolution, isn't it? That you do on on the Live Aid show, right? Yeah, yeah. I've seen an interview with you where you talk about ringing Yoko Ono when you were. Was that when you were going to record <laughs> Revolution, or you or you'd recorded it, or what were you what were you doing with Revolution when you decided to contact Yoko? I think we were recording it, and by this time we'd moved to New York and we were working with Nile Rogers, and you know there was a conversation in the in the control room. Oh, I wonder if uh, I wonder if Yoko would get involved in this. And so, for some reason, I picked up the phone. I was given her number. I picked up the phone, dialed it. She picked up and answered. And something in me said, "No, <laughs> I can't deal with this." This is another story of me uh, freaking out in front of superstars. But I basically put the phone down and decided not to pursue that. Um, so it's a weird little story that led to nothing. Did you ever get any feedback from from her or anybody about your version of Revolution? Uh, um, no, no. Although um, McCartney was a bit of a, a fan, and he 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 gave us the nod a couple of times back in the day, which was nice. Oh, nice! Oh, very in nice. Fact, in fact, he even tried to book us for his daughter's birthday party. Is that right? <laughs> but we couldn't do it. For some <laughs> That's a long Can time I ago. You, I'd forgotten that. Can I ask you about Niles Rogers? Um, so how was Niles Rogers to work with? Well, he was great. I mean, first of all, I must say, we'd done all the principal recording before we teamed up with Niall. So he didn't use his normal session band to cut the tracks. We'd already done that ourselves, uh, which which made sure that it sounded like a Thompson Twins record rather than, rather than a, a New York session record. Yeah. But I must say, it was an absolute pleasure to work with Niall. He's a genius musician, you know, and his, his understanding of music goes much deeper than, than you'd suspect, perhaps from listening to his work. But, of course, he's also the master of hit-making. 
He knows how to make a hit record. That was fantastic. I mean, the only downside was, you know, Niles had some tough times with drugs and alcohol at this time. And it was at one of those low points that we were working with him. So keeping him at the table, so to speak, was, was difficult. Yeah. But we managed and, and remained friends since. Yeah. You formed in 77 as a seven-piece band. Was that, is that how the Thompson Twins sort of started? Started as a four-piece and expanded four. to seven when we when we moved to we moved to London, you know, seeking success and fortune, and we moved to London as all bands in the UK did in those days. Yeah, it kind of expanded because I I became interested in a kind of world music flavor to what we were doing, so we needed extra percussion, extra extra instrumentation. On stage, we were always a big band. We always had to hire in extra musicians. So you went from um, a four-piece to a seven-piece to a three-piece and still retained the Thompson Twins as the name. <laughs> Maths is not your yeah, strong yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was always an absurd name, right? So yeah, yeah. Uh, we, were just con- we were just continuing in that vibe. Yeah, no. Um, uh, it doesn't matter how many. The, the name came from, what, a couple of uh, detective characters out of a comic book, is that right? Tintin. Yeah, yeah. Hershey's Adventures of Tintin. I don't know if that was big in Australia, but when I was a kid in the UK, that was on TV. The Adventures of Tintin was a, a you know an animated cartoon version of that. Yeah, and the Thompson Twins were the detectives. <laughs> the 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 show in Australia when you do uh, Into the Gap, you're going to do it uh, as faithfully to the record in terms of. I know you mentioned you're not going to do it in the in the order that it comes up on the record, but are you going to do? Do you play around with many of the songs uh, in terms of what we heard on the record and what we'll hear on stage? I think it's important for me anyway to contemporise what we do, so yeah. it's not just. A, a kind of live playing of the record. It's a live playing of the songs from the record. Yeah, beautiful. And sometimes sometimes we kind of rearrange to suit how we feel now about those things. Uh, and in fact, most of that is already decided because I've done the arrangements and I've sent the parts to the band and they're currently learning them. Uh, there are times when I don't want it to be just like the record and there are times when I, I think it should be pretty much the same. Yeah. Well, the, the, well, the songs are new and everybody is is for, nearly 40 years past when they first came out, so things do evolve. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And we're not the same people, and, and yet we are trading on the kind of sense of nostalgia, you know, listening again to a kind of golden age of, of pop music, which the 80s certainly was. So can't wait to get to Australia and, and play that album and a few other songs that people know as well. Beautiful. Well, that would be great. Thank you, Tom. Really appreciate your time, mate. Uh, and uh, uh, happy, uh, happy rehearsing and uh, and safe travels to Australia when we see you at, uh, in October. Okay. See you then, and thanks to both of you. Until the 
All right, there's the Thompson Twins. Uh, Tom Bailey, of course, uh, performing uh, that album, uh, as you mentioned, not not in sequence but uh, in its entirety. And uh, that tour starts on Thursday, the 20th of October in Brisbane at the TIV and then uh, winds its way around Australia. So you can check out, uh, uh, you know, just Google the Thompson Twins and you'll get all the dates. They're going to Tweed Head, Sydney, Wollongong, Canberra, Melbourne, Adelaide and Perth. So getting right around the country with that uh, with that tour. Uh, all right. You'll enjoy that. Now, a man who works 364 days a year because he's actually having a day off uh, to talk to us. Ooh. He's been around I forever. I still can't get over the fact that he's on holiday. That's just ridiculous. Well, I think he's on holiday in, in London. He's, he's okay. Social well. media posting is telling me that that's where he is and he's having a good time. So maybe he's over there. Oh. A, maybe it's a working holiday knowing it, but I don't want to get him into any trouble that he's you know claiming it as a tax deduction or anything. Which I'm, right. I'm sure he's over there working, but I've seen – have a look at his social media platforms and you'll find it. But his name, of course, is Izzy Die. He's been around for ages and he's a good scout and we're very happy to have him on The Life of Brian. Couldn't have said it better myself, Kev. Well, I probably could have, but we'll go with what you did. <laughs> Good, thanks. Okay. All right, look at him. He looks fantastic. Jesus, you look shit ass, Brian. How <laughs> 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 no, you doing? Know, you, look, you look good. <laughs> I can kiss you on the lips, mate. <laughs> <laughs> off, off to a perfect start. Oh, fantastic. yes, well, yeah, <laughs> forget foreplay. Let's just get straight into it. Oh, my <laughs> So how long have you been doing it for, Izzy? Uh, one week, one week and 56 years. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> wow, that's a good effort. You look uh, fantastic. Well, it's still, mate, you know, put it this way, they've tried to get rid of me but I'm still hanging in, mate. Well, it's been one hell of a career. You, uh, you know, you, you're still and you're still gigging today. Oh, look, it's crazy. Uh, this last two months I've had more gigs in, in two months than I've had, you know, like 20 years ago I was doing like one a week. Um, th- this last month I did 20 in June, mate. 20 in wow. June. But I, I am, but I am doing it all over the country. You know, that's like you, you, you yeah. in order to do the, um, the, the, the hard yards, you've got to travel. I'm doing a lot of my gigs, uh, whether it's in New South Wales or Victorian country or Queensland and, you know, and, and look, enjoying it. I'm, I'm enjoying being a, a, a musical traveling truck driver. <laughs> hey, given that you said it's one week and 56 years, clearly you remember the first gig. What what was it? It was at the Jewish synagogue in Turak Road, mate, singing, Oh, when the saints go marching in, when the saints go marching. And I wasn't even a saint supporter, but that was the hit of the day. I think Johnny O'Keefe was singing it at the time. Oh, wow. But, uh, that was that one. No, I was only a young kid then, mate. I was, uh, I was singing in the choir at my father's. Synagogue or the church for those people that are not not familiar with the synagogue, yeah. but uh, you know it's like anything. Most of us got our our start singing things like that um, in front of choirs and in front of people. You start to lose your you, know, you you start to not worry about the audience when you see an audience anymore because they're they're like at the church or at the synagogue. So I think I think it, it put us in good stead when we were eight, nine, ten, eleven to be able to be cheeky enough to get up and sing in front of an audience. Brian, what do you think, mate? Oh, he's, Brian's oh, an altar boy. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, <laughs> like I was you an know. I was an altar boy, and and I and I agree. It's sort of sort of like your first stage experience was sort of like, oh well, here I am with the candle and I'm ringing the bell and there's 400 people here and it, you're right. You just sort of go, you get used to um, 
getting up on the stage in front of people. And yeah, I, yeah. yes, that's exactly right. And they and they get used to seeing you, and there's the interaction with the eyes and people. And then, of course, the next thing led to uh, what we used to call in Melbourne the Jewish dancers, because. Uh, people like Michael Gudinski and a few of those young guys, they were only in their 18, 19 like we were, and they were putting on little dances at the um, the back of the church halls or the synagogue halls. And so all of a sudden you got a chance to get up and sing a few songs of the day, like some of the Beatles songs or whatever it might have been. And, you know, you, you basically knew a lot of the audience because they would see you on the weekends at the synagogue or, or at the school. So it was much easier... Um, you know, you weren't sort of thrown into the spotlight like today if you go on, you know, the uh, Australia's Got Talent or something like that, all of a sudden you're in a completely foreign area. We were lucky because we were in an area that we knew, we felt comfy with it, and we were able to learn our, our trade, I guess, in those areas. Who were your influences that sort of inspired you to become a, an entertainer and singer and that, Izzy? Okay, well, I think that probably the, the most influential when I was only uh, 11 or so, I, I bought my first 45 single. I saved up for weeks for it. I spent a guinea, Kevin. You remember what a guinea was? Right? <laughs> yes. Brian doesn't remember it. He's out of your baby. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, I bought uh, Kathy's Clown by the Everly Brothers, which, oh. I, which I thought was and, – and Diana from um, – from uh, Paul Anker. Paul Anker. And, of course, those two songs, I don't know why, but they sort of – they, 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 you know, look, Elvis was going and all that. That was all happening then. But, but those songs sort of gave me a little bit of a tweak as, as to that, what, why, I, why I enjoyed music. And I guess from there, it was a matter of watching shows and people like the John Lennon and, and, uh, you know, Chuck Berry and, and then, and, you know, mimicking their style, their styles, uh, Brian, and then, and then able to take it to the stage. And, and, uh, yeah, it was great. I think the first, um, Paid gigs, well, we didn't get paid, but the first gigs we ever did were at the school when we were singing all the Beatles songs in 62 or something and, uh, you know, they were raising money for a, a thing. You probably don't even know this, Brian, but we used to raise money for social service. <laughs> we were social just like service. A charity. Yeah, well, they, they used to sort of raise money for the, uh, you know, for di- different charities around and we were called. So at lunchtime you would go to the, to the assembly hall and you'd get up and sing five or six songs and you put on your Beatle wig and all that and sing along with all your mates from school. They'd all laugh at you and have a bit of fun. But that gave you the confidence again as I got older, like, you know, I'm 16 then, all of a sudden I'm 18 and I'm, I'm used to it and that, that the Beatles songs and that gave me the, uh, the, um, the reason to keep going. Fair enough. Like, you're very versatile in that... You know, I see, you know, you do an Everly Brothers show and you do Aussie Hits and a Johnny O'Keefe show and, you know, that's that's a pretty big ask, you know, to be able to do so many different styles of music look, and, and look, stuff. I'm, I'm a pretty – look, I'm very uh, understanding of my career. Firstly, I've always been a second banana, which means in showbiz terms I've always been happy to take the second role or the third role rather than be up there – with the hit songs of, say, Normie Rowe, my mate Normie, or Russell uh, Morris and these guys who already had the hit songs and they were able to sing their songs particularly. My songs never really achieved more than, um, you know, they got into the charts and it gave me a, a, a standing. But I was really going to be, I could see in my career, I was really going to be more inventive and much more, um, if I'm going to have longevity, I had to reinvent myself all the time. So in the last 
20 years or so, I've reinvented my career doing many other genres. People, um, I've, I've enjoyed doing the Jolson story for 20 years, which is a, a completely change from doing rock and roll or anything like that because it's <laughs> this music of Al Jolson. I love doing the JOK and I worked with him for a few years. And, of course, I join with other people to do Everly Brothers or, or the other shows I do. So it sort of gives me a chance to do more than just be Brian. <laughs> more than just oh. being the life of Brian, I can be the life of many people and, and I enjoy doing that, mate. I do enjoy it. I wish I could be more than just Brian, but anyway. There no, you no, go. you're great, mate. No, but you, know, <laughs> you, you remember you had a couple of hits there and they were, they were popular and you did your 80s stuff and all that. And it was terrific. But me, I came out of the 60s with um, Uptight, Happening 70s, the, sh- the Go Show, into, you know, the Don Lane and all that. So I was doing a lot of live television shows for 20-odd years, so it gave me a really good standing as the cabaret style. And, of course, watching artists like your Tom Jones and more of the cabaret acts, so I realised that to have longevity in showbiz, you had to have not only uh, be able to sing the songs, but you had to be able to tell a good story. Uh. And, by the way, Kevin, I never let the truth get in the way. (laughs) You had to tell a good story and also sing the songs that people want to hear, so story, songs, Cabaret style, so I, I never lost that sort of cabaret feel. You know, but you, was- you did. I, I remember watching Uptight and uh, and happening seventy and seventy one in those shows with Jeff Phillips and Rusty Wiley and all them emceeing it. But you, uh, Incense was a song I, I remember from that time. You had a you had a couple of songs that were, were almost got you to that well, pop star right. it thing. Was, it was my probably once again very naive on my part. I just took advice from a few people and they said, "Oh, look, uh, do this song from uh, uh, from um, America." You know the the, the song, uh, you know, the, the music of incense and, and then do uh, One Last Kiss. So I sort of covered the um, the, one, the, the uh, Crash Craddock song, One Last Kiss, about 11 or 12 years after his hit yep. and also the Lloyd Price song, Personality. So in doing that, they sort of snuck into the charts, but people still wanted to hear the original, which is understandable, but it still gave me a chance to sing it live on, on television and live concerts. And it gave me a standing. So that that was fine. But unfortunately, they never made it to the top of the chart. So I didn't get a number one hit. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. You were one of the first um, sort of musicians or pop stars to um, get a TV show. And look, you, you did that for years. I did. <laughs> And look, the TV shows were an unusual thing. That's again, uh, that was another sliding door moment, Brian. Because in the mid '70s, when I was uh, the, the I was already finished my pop star days, you know, for the last ten years for, of, of my career doing all the TV, and all of a sudden, people like me and Russell Morris and all Normie, we were all out of favour then. We were sort of the disco had come in. And all of a sudden, Saturday Night Fever, the disco music. By the way, watch this, mate. I'm just doing a bit of a move here. <laughs> oh, splendid. Oh, you're, you're not watching my feet, but that's right. Anyway, <laughs> the disco scene came in. With the disco meant that uh, that people like us, cabaret acts, were, on, were, were not, no longer required per se. I mean, we were still getting gigs, but instead of getting one a week or two a week, we were getting one a month. So I thought... I kept watching TV late at night and I realised that there was a bit of a a movement going on at Channel 9 and luckily enough um, the Nine Network boss gave me an opportunity and I put together the late night movie so it was sort of like although it was on before me a few years before, they were mainly doing uh, the commercials only and a little bit of chatter whereas I sort of morphed it into 
interview. So I'd have Johnny O'Keefe come in. I'd have Russell Morris come in. Uh, you know, um, all the pop stars of the day would pop into Channel 9, and this was unusual, mate, at 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock in the morning. I would chat to them. Then I'd play a movie, do a few commercials. So it was sort of like a late-night um, you know, David Letterman type thing, but but obviously I had to do the commercials and we had a movie running. So the movie, which was normally running for an hour and a half, went for three or four hours. People, <laughs> went, people were going, what the hell? What was the name of the movie? I can't remember, I can't remember the movie. But that was good. It give me about 10 or 12 years of great longevity on telly, Brian, and it was lucky for me that uh, it took off because now, of course, late-night television is a, is a, a regular thing and people watch TV at night. Night, uh, late night, but you can record stuff now and re-record it or watch it on demand. You couldn't do that in the days when I morphed from black and white into colour in the 70s, 76. Yeah. Well, what about acting? Um, it seems to me, what, have you ever done any acting, is it? Look, I did a few of the um, homicide Division 4 type things and, and oh, yeah. a few little uh, film clippy type things, but I guess I was never disciplined enough, like which is I, I appreciate the uh, the discipline of an actor. I never really disciplined myself in acting. I think that came from the cabaret style for me. Look, I've, I've done musicals and you know done a bit of uh, and being able to learn lines and that's fine. But I think that being an actor, you really have a, a, a you've got to have a, a a way of being able to learn everyone else's lines as well as yours. Be able to interact and do it, put on a show. For me, my cabaret act, even to this day, people say, oh, but I saw you last week and your show was different than six weeks ago. And I said, yeah, that's exactly right. I make it up as I go along. I like a completely different change of every show. Sure, I might wear similar costumes, but I do feel that with the show, I watch the audience and I go with the flow. I don't have a set list. People go, "How come you don't have a set list on the show?" Well, no, I've got a and an, I've got a, a set three hundred, and then I go, "This will go well." I might do a Brian Mannix song. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be great. I could do it with the royalties. You <laughs> could, <laughs> but you know, you can see that. So I came from the from the undisciplined from the undisciplined cabaret. Field and so consequently, I wasn't very good at doing the acting. That's what I'm saying, you know. Well, I guess it's a bit of a you know, as a singer, you're always sort of making things bigger than life, and you know, it's a really exaggerated version of yourself, and everything's large. Yes. Well, sometimes with acting, you <laughs> that's the exact opposite of what you need to do. Yeah. Is you know, and I often find when I'm acting, it's like you might have one line like "G'day, mate, how you going?" and you just try to think of some great way to say it, and you shouldn't. You should just go, G'day, mate, how's it going? In other words, you should feel more natural when you do it. Well, look, that's right. Yeah. I, I've, I've always found that uh, when I'm doing my cabaret shows, I love talking. You know, you're right, with acting, you know, you've got to be disciplined to be able to say the lines or the lines that you're saying and listen to what everyone else is saying back to you. See, that's that's the selfishness of a cabaret act. You, It's much more about me, 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 where I'm, I'm – producing something where whether it's a, the songs, the storyline, the dancing, the singing, whatever it is, I'm, I'm making up a little story and uh, I'm not actually involved in someone else's story, which is what an actor is. And I yeah. admire them. I, I do admire the actors that do that, but if but most of them don't really get up and do a, 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 a I guess, a cabaret show with loose ends, which is what I like to do, loose ends, and you tie them up as you go along. I yeah. think that's 
the key to cabaret. What do you think, Kev? Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, tell, I mean, you're kind of reinventing all the time, which has been the, the mark of your career, is that you the secret to longevity in your case is just doing different things all the time and just yep. changing. Now, you can, That's can't, the fun. You can never hit a moving target is what I used to get told. But that's apparently all the people that you toured with in that sort of 60s and 70s period, you know, the, the Roy Orbisons and the Ray Charleses and the, the Beach Boys and the Supremes and all them, Any did, was there any bonding with any of them or was it just simply, a, you know, you're the support actor, you go? Look, uh, you couldn't bond with, say, Ray Charles. You couldn't bond with Ray Charles. He was very, but apart from the fact that, he, you know, he was blind and he had to be taken everywhere and all that, he was very... Low key dude, and uh, very, how should I say it? Had his own style, had minders around him all the time. Sure, you got to meet him and and uh, and and have a nice conversation, cup of tea, and everything. But but uh, it was all about him doing the show with the Raylets, and I was the support act, and that's fine. And I I understood that because he he was a legend. Roy Orbison, on the other hand, was completely opposite. He was Mr. Nice Guy, Mr. Humble, and we did about 14 shows together when we went over towards Adelaide and some country. So at the, at the time I worked with Roy, his career was already at a lull and he was doing mainly the smaller 500, 400-seater venues rather than the concert stadiums that he ended up doing again because his career had the lull, sim- similar to Tina Turner. Yeah. So I was lucky there because I was able to work with him at you know small town halls, you know, like Ararat Town Hall or over to the Adelaide Theatre and Fest- Festival Theatre in Adelaide and Melbourne. So I got to know him. He was much more of a humble, low-key uh, Southern American gentleman and always uh, was very nice to us, you know, how you going and asked always asked after how I was and, so, no, I, I did love working with Roy and now that I'm working with another guy in Melbourne called Glenn Douglas who does an amazing Roy Orbison tribute with the costumes and everything, it's a great thrill because I, I get to sort of see the Roy Orbison again and, uh, and at the same time I, I when I do the show I, I keep remembering in the 70s when I toured with a guy. But the Beach Boys was a different one because we worked in Sydney at a place called the Round, the White Stadium, which had a round Around stage that used to turn. Yeah, Brian, have you ever worked on a on a turning circle stage, mate? No, I haven't, and um, I'd probably fall off and uh, hurt myself. So uh, it's something that, that hasn't happened yet. But you know, there's, there's still time. Know. I guess is, well, the stadium's gone now, mate. But what happened was that in that stadium they used to have the thing turning around, so the stage the thing would turn, 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 and so you'd be facing a different part of the audience for every part of the song. Good God. And that's where I worked with the Beach Boys. Once again, I was only very young then. That was like in the in, that was in the uh, mid-60s. So I was really young and at that stage I was just happy to be one of the support artists on the show. I got to quickly say hello to them and that, that was it, but we never we never any react interacted. But uh, yeah, it was still it was still a great thrill to say I did it with them. You do the Everly Brothers, you mentioned that was the first single you ever bought and uh, that, that must have been a thrill to I've toured with them. Oh, look, I did only a few gigs with them, but it was a really strange thing. Again, it's morphed into me now working with my mate that does the Roy Orbison. Him and I costume up in the Everly Brothers set and we do a whole hour of all the Everly sets. Again, love the harmonies, love the music, but why I loved it so much was in the 70s when the Everly Brothers came to Melbourne to do their show at the Olympic Swimming Pool. Nobody told me. I was comparing the show as well. They didn't tell me that the Everly Brothers hadn't been talking to each other for ah, a few years. That's right. And so they were. They came from different areas 
different dressing rooms, different hotels. They were very, you know, like grunt, 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 shook my hand, went on stage. That was it, saw the show, watched them. They were incredible, by the way. Their harmonies were unreal, but they didn't have any friendly interconnection. And that that did come back to them about two or three years later when they, they kissed and made up as brothers do. And, uh, yeah, but uh, I, I did have a great thrill working with them and listening to the best harmonies I'd ever heard, mate. They were incredible, you know. Uh, uh, amazing. Absolutely amazing. What, you never had a real job? No, I haven't I haven't had a real job. I, look, I went straight from music. I, I was doing engineering for a couple of years there, civil engineering, and I passed my exams and went into – I was supposed to go into third year and then I realised that um, music – I was doing a lot of music at night there was bands in those days in the early 60s, uh, mid-60s called the, the Spinning Wheels and and uh, all these other little bands were coming up and they were doing the I Got the Mojo Work. And remember that song, right? I Got my Mojo Work. <laughs> yeah, all, that, all those 60s songs. And so I thought, this is good. So I would do that sort of stuff on the weekends and during the week trying to be, uh, you know, trying to go to, to, uh, to university and continue the career. But I realised that I got an offer uh, in the late 60s to uh, appear on Turning On with Baby John, which was a um, a TV show that John Burgess did every night at 5 o'clock on Channel 7. It was on nationally, so it was black and white, but it was on every night at half past five till six. And they said, do you want to have a regular spot on it with Ronnie Burns and Molly Meldrum? So I took that and I put up my engineering life and went into and I became a rock, rock man, <laughs> a rock and roll person. In the 60s, when you're doing gigs, how long did a gig go for in the 60s? Because I, I hear stories of people that do 20 minutes here and then they'd go off to some other joint. Yes. You, you're exactly right because my, my ex-brother-in-law, the poor thing, rest in peace, Daryl Cotton, Daryl and I were you know, good mates with the Zoot. He was, of course, in the Zoot. I remember doing lots of different uh, dances as they had them in Melbourne then. They had Opus and Ormond Hall and Mentone Rock, all those places that were the rock and roll places. What you would do is the agency, of which some of them uh, were, um, you know, organising, Gadinsky, Gadinsky, Michael was involved in an agency and a guy called Bill Joseph, Gary Spry, all these guys were running the agencies and they would give us three gigs a night, mate. So we'd do, we'd do an 8 o'clock spot somewhere at one dance and then we do a 10 o'clock spot, you know, 8, 39, and then drive like crazy with the car to the next spot, get stripped off. Do the, remember, we were getting pulled off stage and girls were tearing our shirts up so we had to get changed <laughs> and go to the next gig. And then a midnight spot at the, at the you know, the Ormond Hall or wherever it was. So you'd, you'd do three spots a night and you get like 20 bucks a spot. How about that, Brian? 20 bucks. Well, 20, 20 bucks a spot in the 60s well, probably wouldn't be too bad. You it know, wasn't. Co- well, actually, it was $20 a week wages then. So yeah, well, like, you know. No, no, it was. It was a, good. But we, did, you know, we didn't have anything else. We, we, had to, we had to do everything, drive ourselves there. You know, in those days there was no backing tracks or anything like that with iPads. It was all about the live bands. Of course, you got to know all the bands then. So they knew, oh, Izzy Dice coming here. He likes to sing uh, Rock and Robin. Summer holiday, uh, you know, whatever or whatever. Uh, I do a Neil Diamond song. So I had my list, and sometimes you throw charts down, and other times the guys would go, Oh, yeah, we know Hello, Mary Lou. Boom, bop, boom, bop. Let's do it. So it was all fly by night, but it was it was really exciting times, mate. Because remember, we we're only 19, 20, 21, 22. It was a, it was a great time, mate. Great time. 
Yeah, look, I love the 60s and I love 60s music. I just think it's, you know, pretty hard to surpass, um, you know, because you had the Beatles and the Stones and Elvis and there was so many great music being made in the 60s. Um, my favourite, probably my favourite decade for music. Which well, is, you know, with, with the 60s, it was just amazing because of those, it was a new, a new era. Remember, it was the moving from the swing era of Dean Martin. Everybody loves his party sometimes. You know, all that stuff. <laughs> moving from Dean Martin to the Beatles. Elv, you know, Elvis was still there, but he was doing the 60s comeback and all that business. But it was more about the Beach Boys and all those. To, uh, the songs were unbelievable. Every song was better than the next song. You know, you had, if you look at the charts, there were just so many bands, you know, the Love and Spoonful and, and the Groove Band and all these bands having incredible songs. And, of course, you, you, you were spoiled for choice, Brian, of what you were going to sing. Okay, you, you were singing this or this or this. Or this you go, oh, my God, I'll do this this week, this that week. Those guys that did their originals, of course, I respected them, but I was more about replicating everybody else's music, and and that's what the '60s was about. It was a, it was the, uh, it was the summer of love, mate. <laughs> what's <laughs> the What's the one song that you think identifies you is? Uh, probably the song I love, "Dream Lover." I do love singing the "Dream Lover" from Bobby Darin. I've got a an affinity with the Bobby Darin. I never saw him live, watched him on television, but. The guy passed away. He was only thirty-seven, of course. Oh, yeah. But all the when I looked at his career, he started off as a cabaret act in the fifties, and I mean, people like him had Elvis and Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra in the audience in the late night shows, the Flamingo Lounge at one or two o'clock in the morning when all the others had finished their gigs. He was there in the cabaret room doing his live gigs. So I sort of watched a lot of those on on the videos. Watched his style, his easy, easy way of, of singing, and of course you couldn't beat the uh, you know eighteen yellow roses and things, and of course his number one hit, Cream Lover. It's probably one of my all time favorite songs. I love that song, and it was covered by Glenn Shorrock, by the way, in the nineties. Yeah, it was too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So you know, a great song. So that look, I love many other songs. Summer Holiday, one of my favorites. The Ring of Fire, Johnny Cash, which oh, man. to me it just sort of brings out th- this this amazing style, and I love all that. But again, um, you know, it's look. Everyone has their own taste, and I do love those songs. Yeah. Hey, mate. Yeah. Thanks for catching up. Been bloody yeah. terrific having a chat with you. I hope I haven't uh, talked too much. No, absolutely. It's no, the whole no. object of the exercise was to hear you talk. It's good to see you looking so well and so happy and so vibrant and so bloody energetic. God, can we bottle that? Know, look, but just so you know, I I'm at the gym at six thirty every morning that I'm not working for two hours, and I do. The most important, I tell my friends, look, I'm 76, but you stretch, 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 and uh, then I do the weights, exercises, and I finish off with a um, you know, half-hour swim, 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 but, and uh, I'm doing 50 push-ups. So to me, uh, as long as I can keep doing that, uh, I'll keep rocking, mate. Shit, I'm exhausted even thinking about that. That's, but you've got to do that. <laughs> Who's going to carry my gear? I've got to carry the gear. So, <laughs> you know, people say, why haven't you got a roadie? I say, look, if I have a roadie, it means I'm sitting on my backside doing nothing and I'm, I'm happy to do the hard yards, mate, and uh, I do enjoy the hard yards. And as I say, walk around Australia somewhere tonight and you'll see Izzy Guy doing something. One last kiss, oh baby, one last kiss. It never felt like this, oh baby, one last kiss.
Coming to a venue near you soon. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. Have you ever actually done a show with him? Like been on stage with him and sung with him? No, I haven't. There but my go. brother, my brother played bass for him for a little while. Oh, okay. Um, my brother was in a band called Ebony Flash. This is back in the seventies, I think. Um, and yeah, my brother did quite a few shows with him. Um, and so, yeah, there is a slight connection there. Yeah, I should have. I should, I should have mentioned that in the interview. Yeah, well, now you bring it up. Uh, but yeah. anyway, uh, no, he's, he's he's one of the great troopers, and uh, he is a great showman. He puts on a great show, whether it's Johnny O'Keefe, whether it's Al Jolson, or whatever it is. He is uh, he's an entertainer. He's very good, and he's a um, very entertaining man. Yes, he is. Yeah. Good to have him right. on the show. Speaking of that, now this bloke that uh, we're going to uh, give you a little bit of a listen to now, we, we did a, a mo- much more extensive interview, which you'll hear in bits and pieces and uh, and a big slab in, in future episodes of the podcast. But his name is Sam Cutler. He's um, he's uh, lives in Australia these days and has for many years now, but he used to be, back in the late 60s, early 70s, the tour manager of the Rolling Stones. And then after that, after the uh, infamous ultimate concert where uh, the bikies went berserk and and uh, stabbed a, a, an audience member. He uh, he left the Stones and became the manager of, of the Grateful Dead. Yeah. Now, there's going from, you know, there's, there's going from the sublime to the ridiculous, is it not? <laughs> well, you know, you sort of... Well, you sort of think, well, you know, the Stones would take drugs, you know, oh. but then you sort of go, well, what band could I go work with that take even more drugs than the Stones? <laughs> and I think the, you've got your answer, the Grateful Dead. Good grief. Yes, that is, that is one of the great the little the things. And we, and we talked to him about all that sort of stuff, but we want to give you a little uh, a little listen to uh, this. This is uh, about the big concert, that uh, one, one of the first big concerts he did with the Rolling Stones. So uh, let's have a listen to Sam Cutler. Mm. Can I take you back to the the Hyde Park uh, concert with the Stones? Because you sort of you sort of l- locked in with the Stones at a, what was a really volatile time, and a, I guess a really interesting time for them. Brian Jones had just passed away. They did the Hyde Park concert two or three days or whatever it was after yeah, well, after his yeah, passing. I mean, the Hyde Park concert. What actually happened was I did a show in Hyde Park before the Stones show uh, with uh, um, Blind Faith. 
It was their first show. Uh, they weren't that great. They were all fucking smacked out, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, uh, 150,000 people at it, you know what I mean? That's Peter Frampton, Steve Winwood. Uh, am I right? Yeah. yeah, Ginger, yeah. Ginger on drums. Yep. Um, everybody was there. Everyone was ready to go. No Ginger Baker. It was like, oh, fuck. Can't do the show without a, be- a drummer, can you? And at the last minute, this uh, giant rental truck arrived and they, and uh, somebody came to the stage and said to me, oh, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, Ginger's drums. Okay. Seemed like a bit over the top of truck. You know, it was this fucking huge truck. It was like, what? For a drum kit? You know what I mean? It seemed all a bit excessive, really. Anyway, they put, we finally got the, through the crowd, we got the truck up to the stage. And it was a tiny little stage, really. And, um, opened the back of the truck, the truck, and there was the whole drum kit was already set up on, like, a riser. So we, we had to, you know, get 10 people to volunteer to help lift it. And the whole fucking issue was lifted out of the back of the truck, on the stage, and there it was, ready to go. And then Ginger mm. miraculously appeared, and uh, that was that. So at that show, um, there was all, you know, kinds of people that were, you know, the London fashionable people like, um, yeah, like uh, Paul McCartney was there, Mick was there with Marianne, all kinds of different, Donovan was there, all kinds of different people. And it was a lovely summer's day, you know, as I say, 150,000 people. Mick was very interested in the whole thing, like, you know, how we organised it, how it, you know, came together, how we got permission from the parks, because the parks in London are all, theoretically at least, owned by the Queen. Not uh, not Freddie Mercury, the, 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 <laughs> Elizabeth, Elizabeth, and uh, you know what I mean. So you have to get you know permission from the Royal Parks Department and all that all that crap. So Mick was very interested in that, and he was mainly interested in that because the Stones hadn't played for fucking ages, two or three years since they'd really played a live gig, and they needed to do it. You know, they they were kind of in danger of irrelevance, shall we say, to be nice about it. And Brian was constantly getting busted. They were per- The cops were persecuting Brian. We were paying off the cops, you know, to kind of leave the rest of the stones alone. And Mick got busted and Keith got busted. It was all a fucking mess. So anyway, uh, I had a long talk with Mick about it, you know, at the gig. And, uh, yeah, he was really interested in doing it doing a, a gig in in, uh, in the park. And I was like, well, of course, you know, if you want to do it, no problem, then we'll organise it for you. You know, sure. And then so they decided, unbeknownst to me, that they were going to fire um, Brian, yeah. basically, or part ways with Brian, who knows, you know, it depends on how you want to, you know, characterise it, and uh, introduce Mick Taylor to the world. So that was all right. Okay, I, I knew Mick, you know, from being with... Um, What's his name? Oh, fuck, I can't think of his name. I remember an old time as John Mayle? Was he in John Mayle? Yeah, yeah. we'd be with Mayle's band, you know, and he, he used to play around different gigs in uh, London and stuff. And, you know, he's a wonderful guitar player. Nice cat too. And, uh, you know, um, so that all came together and so we did a show for the Stones. And that was all, you know, going well. And then Brian died in to be polite about it, mysterious circumstances. 
And, uh, yeah, right, so uh, what to do, you know? So it was like they decided to soldier on, make it a kind of memorial for Brian. That's what we did, you know? And there's half a million people at it, or however many it was, 300,000, I don't know. Uh, and it was, you know, very English. Everybody smoked hashish. No cops. The cops all decided not to appear. They just thought, oh, if they weren't, if there were no cops, there'd be riots and it would all, you know what I mean, descend into chaos and that would um, that would make the Rolling Stones look foolish or whatever. But actually, as it happened, everybody behaved themselves. Uh, the medical services were two old ladies from the Red Cross who gave you a cup of tea and a biscuit, if you know what I mean. And <laughs> they dealt with half a dozen people, that was it, you know, who fainted because it was a boiling hot day. And we cleaned up the whole park afterwards and it was just a, a great success. All right, that's Sam. You'll hear more of Sam, uh, a more elongated version of Sam uh, talking about oh, all sorts of stuff. Uh, he's, he's old school, but he's good fun. He sounds like Keith Richards, I reckon. He does. He, he does. does. He sounds like Keith Richards. Yeah, he um, does. Um, uh, you know, and he had that big skull ring like uh, Keith Richards Yeah, too. he does too, yeah. So check him out on social media. You can follow him on uh, on Facebook. Uh, he puts some really entertaining blogs and stuff up uh, about uh, his travels around the country. And as he mentioned, he's about to go on tour uh, with his good friend. So we'll, we'll catch up with him again before Christmas. But you'll hear more of that interview we did uh, in the coming episodes as well as um, mm-hmm. Sean Kelly. Yes. He's going to join us. Uh, Ronnie Charles from The Group, uh, right. a great band of the 60s that I just adored, and a, a man called Tony Burrows. was the voice of songs like uh, Beach Baby by First Class and uh, Love Grows by Edison Lighthouse. Uh, we've tracked him down as well to have a, a chat about being uh, most interesting. He was basically a session singer who was in three or four bands at any one time as their lead singer and enjoying top ten success in England. It's, it's quite an unbelievable story. That's not a bad position to be in, is yeah, it? Yeah, it's sort of like a gun for hire. He'd just walk into a studio, uh, sing the sing the lead vocals of the song and go, I'll do your television appearance and that'll be it. Off you go. Didn't go on and tour with them, didn't like touring, so didn't tour. Uh, well, you know, good thing about being in three bands and all recording, if one of the songs doesn't stiff, you go, well, just piss off <laughs> and concentrate on the other two. Well, bands. at one stage he had three songs in the top ten in the UK three different bands and had three appearances on the same episode of Top of the Pops. Oh, now he's just showing off. <laughs> it's, cool. it's an unbelievable story, so we'll catch up with Tony. Uh, and uh, you've got uh, more renovations to do. Does your back passage need uh, rendering now, does it, Brian? No. <laughs> oh, gee whiz. You just always take it straight to the gutter, oh, sorry. really. Sorry, I forgot you what know. it was. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, <laughs> no, I've got um, – yeah, I'm waiting for my – I'm waiting for my uh, – King Kong wallpaper to come along. That hasn't arrived yet, but that goes in my spare room behind the bed head and it's from the 1933 one, so it's New York City with all the biplanes and King Kong. Oh, I love that. That's a great scene. That's a, when you when you go on with the rides in uh, at that Universal Studios in America, you come through that and they show that and it's the old King Kong, not the new King Kong. Yeah, no, the 1933 one. Yeah, yeah. It's Ray. Incidentally, it was Hitler's favourite movie. Is it right? That is right, yeah. Say so, right, and Hitler, I guess, because, you know, he's a big monkey attacking New York, he probably thought, well, that was great. Yeah. Oh, wow. But, yeah, it was Hitler's favourite film. Yeah, so that's, that, that's that war stuff that you like reading about, isn't it? I do like a bit of war stuff, a bit of an army head. I, I find it quite interesting. Um, Vietnam and World War Two, and even World War One. Um, yep. yep, that's all good. We should get an army man on the show, Kev. We will. We will. Yeah. 
Yeah, that'd be good, actually. We should mention our good friends at Murcotts too before we finish up. Uh, 1-300-555-576. That's the telephone number. Give them a ring mm. or jump on the website, murcotts.edu.au. And as we mentioned, it's coming up to Christmas. It'll be Christmas before you know it. So if you're thinking, oh, what am I going to get? Ah, I know. A gift uh, certificate. That's it. It's gift vouchers all around. There yep. you go. You've done all your Christmas shopping in one stop. And, and you've done a good thing at the same time, which is you you've, know, you've made you've, you've made your community safer. You've bought all your Christmas presents. Wow, it's a win-win situation. Now, Thursday the 20th of October is the first of the uh, Thompson Twins dates with Tom Bailey, so uh, uh, check that out if you want to see uh, the Thompson Twins. Thanks to Tom for being on the show. Thanks to Izzy Dye. We'll find out why he's in England and why he's not working. Uh, yeah, I and- want to... Written report about that. And more from Sam Cutler coming in future episodes. Well, off you go to more renovations uh, there in the Rock Block and we'll talk to you uh, the next time we meet on Life of Brian, dot, 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 Mannix, that is Mannix. All right, I'll be here.